Mm. I got food in my mouth. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome to Amsterdam Talk Season 4, Episode 4. Tonight, we bring you ex-collegiate ball player Terry Tucker, who's a motivational speaker. So before we get started, Terry, tell us about yourself. Well, Rob, thanks for having me on. I'll let you chew and I'll <laughs> talk here for a minute. Uh, I was born and raised on the south side of Chicago. I am the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from looking at me or from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. Mm. And as you mentioned, I played college basketball at the Citadel. I've got a, a brother who's six foot seven, who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame's baseball team. Another brother who's six foot six, who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers, the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was six five. So we used to joke that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, not a prayers chance you were going to see anything that was going on um, during the mass. So when I graduated from the Citadel, I moved home to find a job. I was actually the first person in my family to graduate from college. Um, and I'm going to date myself a little bit, but this was long before the internet was available right. to help people find employment. Fortunately, I found that first job in the marketing department at the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the mm -hmm. hamburger chain. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I lived with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mother care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Uh, as I said, professionally started out at Wendy's, became uh, a hospital administrator after that, and then made a major pivot in my life and became a police officer. And part of what I did during my law enforcement career was I was a SWAT team hostage negotiator. Mm -hmm. After that, I started a school security consulting business, coached girls high school basketball. But for the last 11 and a half years now, I've been battling a rare form of cancer, a rare form of melanoma. Okay. So mm -hmm. how is that? Is Now I got to ask you about the SWAT negotiator. Is it, is it really like the movie to negotiate? Is that how you really did it? Are you talking about the Samuel L. Jackson yes, movie? Or Jackson movie. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, Samuel L. Jackson was, you know, almost next to God with that guy. I, I mean, the guy did everything. He was amazing. No, it's not really like that. We do it as a team. There'll okay. be one person that's actually on the phone or on the headset negotiating. Sitting right next to that person will be another negotiator that's mm -hmm. listening to what's going on. And then there'll be three, four, five more people kind of working the crowd, getting information. Why are we here? What precipitated this? Why did this person do this? Whatever we can get. So as the primary, you may get a note from the secondary that says, don't talk about his mother. Because right. the team found out that he had a big fight with his mother and he barricaded himself in his room with a gun. So right. it was more of a team approach than just one person doing everything. Okay. All right. I got it. I just wanted to ask that was it the same way, you know, sure. but you know, normally in those movies, there's always one guy, but this is a new light to it that you say you got a team It's like four people. Exactly. So yeah, I just thought it was just like one. I mean, like even in Die Hard, there was just one out there talking to Bruce Willis. Exactly. Yeah, I know. It's... Right. I mean, that part is true. I mean, there is just one person talking, but like mm -hmm. I said, there's, a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes with other negotiators that know what kind of information we're looking for that we want that we could use to help to get the person out. So it's it's definitely a team approach. Okay. So you develop these four truths, 
you know, as far as like to encourage and guide and support, you know, when you speak. So could you tell us about these four truths that you develop? Sure. Th these four truths are really something that I, I think I've learned over my entire life, but they've really kind of come together mm -hmm. during these last 11 and a half years as I've been dealing with cancer. And I call them my four truths. Now, I mean, they're not mine. I don't I don't own them or haven't copyrighted or anything like that. I don't right. I don't think you can own a truth, but I have them here on a post-it note in my office. So I, I see them multiple times during the day and, I, and I'll give them to you. There's just one sentence each. The first one is control your mind or your okay. mind is going to control you. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life right. and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more resilient individual. The mm -hmm. third one is more of a legacy type of truth. And it's this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one, I think is pretty self-explanatory. As long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. So I kind of call these four truths sort of the bedrock of my soul. I just think they're, they're a good place for people to try to build a quality life off of. Right. So how do you control, how do you actually control the mind? Because the mind is actually powerful. So and actually, like you said, it can control you. So how do you tell someone like, you know, you got to control it? Yeah, the mind is powerful. I mean, it's powerful enough. It, it emits enough energy that it can light a 25 watt light bulb, right. all our brains. That's how much energy that, that the brain uh, puts out. How do you control it? You basically do hard things. You, you, let me rephrase. You probably callous it more than you control it. Okay. And the way you do that is you do hard things. And I recommend, I do this every day. I recommend to everybody, whether I'm on a podcast or I speak to them in person, do one thing every day that scares you, that makes you nervous, that makes you uncomfortable, that's potentially embarrassing. <clears throat> Excuse me. It doesn't have to be a big thing. But if you do those small things every day, when the big disasters in life hit us, and let's face it, they they hit all of us. You know, we lose somebody who's close to us. We get let go from our job. And by now we have a chronic or a terminal illness. You will be so much more resilient to handle those things when they present themselves. So a, a real easy thing to do is do things you don't want to do. You know, I, I need to, I want to go to the gym or I need to go to the gym. I don't want to go to the gym, go to the gym. I need right. to study for this test. Oh, I don't want to study for that test. Study for the test. I need to clean the house. Oh, I don't want to do that. Clean the house. I need to go to the grocery store. Oh, I don't want to do that. Go to the grocery store. Those things that you don't want to do, that just gets your brain to a point where it can handle difficult things. It can handle uncomfortable things, but we don't like to handle uncomfortable things. We right. like it just, hey, it's comfortable. It's familiar. The way things are right now is good and just leave it alone. But that comes from our brain. And if you can't control your brain, you can't control your body. And I'll give you one story. When I was growing up in Chicago, uh, Bobby Knight, who just died, was the basketball coach at Indiana University. Mm. And I played high school basketball against Isaiah Thomas, who okay. played for Knight and eventually went on to win a couple of NBA championships with the Pistons. And mm. we would see each other in the summer when we would come back to Chicago. And I remember talking to him about Knight. And he said, yeah, Knight's got this quote that goes, mental is to physical as four is to one. 
So here's this great coach, you know, teaching premier athletes to use their bodies to be great basketball players on the court. But what he was really saying with that quote is that your mind or your mindset is four times more important to your overall success in life than anything your physical body is going to do. Right. <clears throat> oh, man. So, okay. So I'm guessing what I should say, you said you've been dealing with this chronic disease for 11 years. So that's what you had to wind up doing to control yourself to, you know, over your mind. I, absolutely. I, and, and I don't want, Rod, you to think or, or even your audience to think that I don't have bad days. I, I mean, I do. I mean, I am still treated every three weeks at the hospital. I go Monday through Friday. I get infused with a drug that beats me up. I, I shake. I throw up. I do all kinds of fun stuff. I have bad days. I get down. I cry. I feel sorry for myself. I, I, I'm a human being. I, I mean, yeah. I'm not Superman. But when those things happen, I remember, I remember a story, and, and I think your audience might like this. Back in the 1950s, there was a professor at Johns Hopkins University who did a very simple experiment with rats. He took rats and he put them in a tank of water that was over their head. And he wanted to see how long the average rat could tread water. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And just as those rats were getting ready to sink and drown, he reached in, grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. Mm -hmm. And then he took the exact same rats and put them back in that exact same tank of water. And the second time around, on average, those rats treaded water for 60 hours. Mm. Now think about that. The first time, 15 minutes. It's not like your business is going to go under or you're going to lose your job. No, you're going to die. Your, your life is going to be over. And the second time around, 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our right. lives that, you know, if you know you're doing the right thing, but maybe not today, maybe not this month, maybe not even this year. But if you continue down that road, more than likely, eventually you'll get to where you want to be. And mm -hmm. the second thing it taught me was just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. People give up, they give in, they quit long before their physical bodies do because they can't callous or harden their brain. Right. Yeah. That. So I'm guessing, you know, when he put them in it the second time, the 15 minutes turned to 60 hours because they basically they adapted to it. Well, they thought they were going to, you know, it's like I, I can keep going because I know somebody's going to rescue me. Somebody's going to help me out here. And so I'll just keep going. And again, how much more can your body handle? How much more damage? I mean, I had I had my foot amputated in 2018. I had my leg amputated right in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Mm. And it's like, I'm still going. It's like, that's not going to slow me down. That's as a matter of fact, it put me in a wheelchair, so I'm even faster. <laughs> well, you were good spirits about it. I mean, but like you say, you know, everybody have down days as far as that, you know, it's just human. We all got emotions. Yeah. So you also stated that what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. What do you mean by that? So I, I'm going to guess most of your audience knows or has heard of Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers on his television show, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. Yes. He educated so many kids, including me growing up. Well, when Mr. Rogers died in 2003, his family was going through his effects and mm -hmm. they found his wallet. Mm -hmm. And inside his wallet was a scrap piece of paper 
on which Mr. Rogers had written four simple words. Life right. is for service. Mm -hmm. Ron, I think so many people feel that they're born empty. And whenever they get into life, whatever that looks like for them, you know, whether they go in the military, they go, they go to college, they get a job, whatever it ends up looking like, that their job then is to fill themselves up. You know, I've got to get a good job. I've got to get a great education. I've got to make a lot of money, drive a nice car, have a nice house. You know, they fill themselves up. And what I found is it's not that. It's just the opposite. We're not born empty. We're born full. We're born with everything we need to be successful in our lives already inside of us. We right. just need to find it, pull it out, and use it to our benefit. So instead of thinking that your life is all about filling yourself up, because what I found is there's always one more thing you can get. I can get the newest iPhone or I can drive the latest car, whatever, and, and that's going to make me happy and that's going to make me fulfilled. And it doesn't. It's right. not about what you give. Or excuse me, it's not about what you get. It's about what you give. So your purpose in life should be, and this is my opinion, you can disagree with me, should be to empty yourself out for the betterment, certainly of yourself and of your family, but also of your friends, of your community, of your country. And I think people that do that, first of all, they're much happier, they're much more fulfilled. And secondly, I think they leave a legacy of service to people. And I'll end with this. When I, uh, when I had my leg amputated, <laughs> I went with my wife to the mortuary and to the cemetery and to the funeral home or into the church, and I planned my funeral. And because I do podcasts and I, I talk, you know, I, I'm a motivational speaker, I got some brushback from people who commented that somehow planning my funeral was in some way defeatist. And mm -hmm. I, had to, I had to remind these people that the last time I checked, we're all going to die. Don't think right. anybody's working on a cure for life right now. Right. Every one of us is going to die. But Rod, not every one of us is really going to live. Right. And, and I heard a Native American Blackfoot proverb years ago that I absolutely love. And it goes like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Mm -hmm. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I'm looking for. I got you. I'm well, to actually to quote Drake, he said in one of his lyrics, everybody dies, but not everybody lives. So yeah. Um, and what you just said about, you know, coming in about birth and dying, death, as the New Orleans culture, they cry at birth, but laugh at death. Yeah. It's like total differently because they don't see you passing along they like you transition but we're going to celebrate you you know yeah, and, that, and, and that's, that's just it. and we should we should celebrate each other we should you know i i should be happy when you're successful but we tend to sort of get out of our own lane you know mm -hmm. you have a purpose in life i have a purpose in life your parents mm -hmm. have a purpose I, I mean everybody has a purpose in life but we tend to look at other people and not be thankful or grateful for what they have. Now we want to be jealous. It's like, wait a minute, you're driving a nicer car, you're making more money, or, or or you're better than I am. I can't be happy for you. I want what you want. Well, my life isn't your life. Your mm -hmm. life isn't your siblings' lives. So don't go to the point where 
hey, I want what they want. Why do you want that? Just because they have it? Or is there a clear reason that you think that should be part of your journey? Most people, it's just jealousy. I, I want what they have. I like what they have and I want it and I don't have it. Why can't you just be grateful or happy for those people and continue down your road mm -hmm. to whatever you end up getting in your life? Well, I mean, you know, that that comes from the big. I mean, and when I say this, um, you know, cocaine, heroin, marijuana, they're not the biggest drugs in America. The biggest drug in America is attention. And, you know, so we have this thing, social media. So you start seeing everybody's on social media has a good life, happy marriage, rich, everybody. So it's like you put on a facade to go on, you know, social media because the attention, it's a drug. People don't want to see it that way. But, you know, any pharmacy, any street pharmacist or pharmaceutical things that we take opioids or whatever, it outweighs all of that. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you can overdose over opioids and, and things of that nature. But when some people, you know, they when you get all this attention, some people can't handle it. And they said, you know, and I believe, uh, who said it? Uh, one of these entertainers said, fame is a hell of a drug. Yeah. It's, it's all about what you do because it's constantly nonstop. And, and today, there's a constant camera on you, everything you do, whether it's just somebody taking a photo of you or videotaping or TMZ or paparazzi coming down on you. Like, how do you handle that? And uh, like some of the biggest stars, they're depressed, they're miserable. But you have to put on this show because people expect because I got millions and billions of dollars, I'm supposed to be happy. I mean, they say money can't buy happiness, and which is true, because people actually have a lot of money and they just be miserable. You make a really good point. There, there's a book called uh, "Do Hard Things." It's written by a man by the name of Steve Magnus, and Magnus used to be the head track and field coach at the University of Minnesota. And he, he tells a story in the book about, and I don't remember if it was a professor or a researcher or who actually did the study, but he took young people mm -hmm. and he put them in a room and there was nothing in the room but a table and a chair. And they mm -hmm. were not allowed to have their cell phones or iPads or, or earbuds or anything like that. Mm -hmm. The only other thing in the room was a buzzer. And okay. if you press the buzzer, you received an electric shock. 68% of the men and 25% of the women pushed that buzzer, including one guy who pushed it every five seconds. And the conclusion was, just like you say, these people can't, they are nobody. They are addicted, as you say, they are addicted to social media. They are addicted to what somebody in their peer group or their friends group or whatever said about their clothing or their hair or their jewelry or whatever it is. Why are you letting somebody who's never walked one minute in your shoes occupy space in mm -hmm. your brain? I always say you you they living in your head rent free. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're right. It's, I mean, you got to be thankful what you got. And it's not about what you don't have. It's about what you got, because at the end of the day. Um, you have friends. We all grow with friends. Some friends will get it faster than you, but right. your time is coming. So someone may be 25, 26, making a hundred K you might be making 30, 40 K, um, depending on what you're doing. And then maybe they get stuck at that hundred K, but 10 years later, now you at 140 K. Right. 
So it's just like, I always look at it as like, if you do the work, the work will take care of you. I mean, the work will never fail anybody if you do what you're supposed to do. That And that's also, you know, as being a collegiate player, is practice. You just got to keep, it's repetition, repetition, repetition. If I keep doing this, I'm going to be able to do this. Right Now, sometimes you might not make it there because life throw curveballs and forks in the road. That might be a calling because I would take myself personally growing up. I wanted to be a doctor growing up. But then when I got in college, it was like, I want to help people. So that's what I do. You know, I work for I'm, I work public sector and everybody says you should go private. No, I don't want to go private. I like public because I want to help people. Yeah, you found it sounds like you found your purpose. You, you found yeah. what you're supposed to do. And again, going back to the Mr. Rogers, you know, life is for service. You are servicing. You are helping other individuals. And you seem to be an individual who's fulfilled by that. You seem to be be happy that you are doing that because you're making a difference, positive difference in other people's lives. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. I, I was like, the, the money don't matter because the fact that, well, the money does matter because I have to pay my bills. But sure. nobody's ever gotten rich being in public service. Right. So, you know, and that's one thing my, my chief always say, if you're looking to get rich, just the wrong industry for you. I mean, and I don't want to get rich. I mean, if it comes, it comes. But as far as be, being able to change one person's thought or help people out, that's like, that fulfills me. And I can go to sleep at night like, well, you did this today and that goes from there. Absolutely. So, so uh, we had a couple minutes left. So you, this book that you have, Sustainable Excellence, what is that? What, what inspired you to write that book? Yeah, Sustainable Excellence was really born out of two conversations that I had. One was with a former player that I had coached in high school uh, who had moved to the area in Colorado where my wife and I live with her fiance. And the four of us had dinner one night. And I remember saying to her after dinner that I was excited that she was living close and I could watch her find and live her purpose. And Rod, she got real quiet for a while. And then mm. she kind of looked at me and she said, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have absolutely no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. Finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth, using your unique gifts and talents and living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then I had a young man reach out to me on social media from college. And he said, what do you think are the most important things that I should learn not to just be successful in my job or in business, but to be successful in life. And I didn't want to give them that, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. I, I didn't want to give them the sort of cliches that we all know. And so I, I started taking some notes and eventually kind of had these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And so I sent the principles to them. And then I stepped back and I was like, well, I got a life story that fits underneath that principle. And I know somebody whose life emulates this principle. So literally, literally during the four month period where I was healing after I had my leg amputated, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the 10 principles. And that's how sustainable excellence came to be. Gotcha. So I just was Googling something knowing you. So it popped up that you have um, you did a podcast on, on reinventing yourself to live extraordinary lives. I, I've done probably 600 podcasts. So yes, I probably I probably did that one. <laughs> yeah, it just popped up because actually I was going to 
try to uh, find some old Citadel stuff for you and just like, let's see him in action real quick. This this was a long time ago. This was, I, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a quick story about that. So I graduated from college in 1982. Okay. It was Michael Jordan's freshman year at North Carolina. Right. So we play what's called the North-South doubleheader, the Citadels in South Carolina. So they took the Citadel and Furman, Mm-hmm. And they took North Carolina and North Carolina State, and we played at the Charlotte Coliseum. Mm-hmm. So on Friday night, I play against Jordan. 1982 was the year North Carolina won the right. national championship. The following year, 1983, Jim Valvano and North Carolina State won the national championship. Mm-hmm. And so Saturday night, I, we get to play against Valvano. So unbeknownst to me, in the course of a weekend, I get to play against two national championships teams. Mm-hmm. Fast forward say 20 years. My youngest brother, the one who pitched at Notre Dame, is a basketball coach at Loyola Academy in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He's coaching Michael Jordan's two sons. Marcus and Jeffrey. He says, one day I'm at practice, I'm teaching the players a drill, and I look up and nobody's paying attention to me. So I look where the players are looking, which is over at the door to come into the gym. And Jordan had come into the gym as a dad to pick up right. his kids and take them home. And right. so my brother looked at him and said, hey, Michael, you're you're a little bit of a distraction. Would you mind waiting out in the hall with the other parents? And Jordan, Jordan and his wife are incredibly gracious people. said, sure, coach, I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt. My brother thought later, I'm probably the only coach in the history of basketball that ever kicked Michael Jordan out of practice. You know? <laughs> oh, so it sounds like you had an interesting career. You played against, you played against uh, Jimmy V, uh, Michael Jordan, James, those guys. Yeah, I mean, when we played North Carolina, it was Jordan's freshman year. He wasn't the Michael Jordan that we know now. North Carolina's big gun was James Worthing. That right. that was the person who everybody, you know, concentrated on. And it wasn't until really the championship game that Jordan kind of, you know, made that last second shot that won them the national championship. Yeah, that was Jordan Worthy, uh, Sam Perkins. Uh, O'Corn, and I'm trying to remember who the other guy was. Yeah, they were like household names. It was North Carolina and Dean Smith, you know. So, yeah, and I think Kenny Smith was a point guard, right? I think you're right. Okay, so yeah, really felt like you had a fabulous career. You played against Isaiah in the summertime in Chicago, Southside Chicago, Isaiah Thomas, um, and your brothers and basketball and football. You said your brother got drafted by the Cavs, though, correct? He was. He was a Division II All-American two years in a row and was drafted by Cleveland in 1983. He was the last person cut, so he didn't he didn't make the team, but he still had the experience of going to camp and being drafted and all that stuff. Yeah, that, that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. But like you said at the beginning, yeah, I, I'm, I'm only 5'9", so I couldn't see over here. <laughs> so, you know, when God was giving out height, I was absent that day. I understand. I understand. So, uh, okay. So I can't even, I was going to ask you that, who was the best person you played against, but obviously you played against the GOAT. <laughs> so, yeah, that would have been an easy question. <laughs> yeah, that, you played against the GOAT, so <laughs> that makes it easy. Uh, so, you know, other than that, if anybody want to reach out to you, where can they reach you with? Yeah, so I have a blog. It's called Motivational Check. Um, I put up a thought for the day every day. I, I, I put up the Monday morning motivational message recommendations for books to read videos to watch you can leave me a message you can get access to my book that's all at motivationalcheck.com okay 
All right. Well, well, thank you for coming through Amsterdam Talk and, you know, giving us some motivation and telling people how to actually value themselves and don't let their brain control them. So it was a pleasure. Thank you for coming. Well, Rod, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed talking with you. All right. So uh, see y'all next week, next Wednesday. I forgot who. I never remember who's coming. <laughs> so, see y'all next Wednesday at 8 p.m. At, at 7 p.m. next week. <laughs> All right. You can cut it.